Let us pray. God, in being before your word right now, we have a chance to encounter the truth of your word, the truth of the fact that your word came into the world in order to give us assurances and peace in Christ's name. So we pray that the word might do its work, the word might help grow our faith or bring us to faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Fulton. Robert Fulton. To how many, I want to see a show of hands, does name Robert Fulton mean anything for? All right, I'm impressed. I am impressed because who you're talking about is my ancestor. I am by uh, lineage related to Robert Fulton. Actually on my bucket list is I, apparently out in the, the Lancaster area. Uh, there is a hotel, uh, an inn for Robert Fulton. I would like to stay there at some point because this is my ancestor. His, his history is one that he was so famous at one point in time in 1896 that if you got a $2 bill, it wasn't the classic picture you see on the back of a $2 bill today, but actually Robert Fulton's image was there. My ancestor. It means something to me. It probably wouldn't mean much to me if it wasn't connected to me and my story, but I, you know, I, I like history. I, I know and I appreciate history, but if Robert Fulton's name wouldn't you know, spark interest like it does if it weren't for that connection. But you know what people say about history, right? History's boring. History's not important. History's a, you know, a bunch about uh, dates in the past and a bunch of dead people. Why do you need to study it? And when I share facts like that, I often will have people grumble in such ways. And yet here is the opening of the Gospel of Luke. And in the opening of the Gospel of Luke, in the first four verses, before Luke gets into anything about the Christmas story, Anything about uh, the, the things that adorn our mind and our thoughts about the Christmas season. He is talking about the importance of history. The importance of understanding and having an orderly history and a good history. Actually, it's very clear from the very first verse that he had heard many histories about Jesus up until this point, a wide array of shirt, I'm certain, because he doesn't do something like suggest, oh, just read this history, it's a good history about Jesus, or read that history, but rather, Luke says, I want to make an orderly history. Now, Luke wasn't the first gospel, and he's not necessarily insulting the gospel of Matthew and possibly the gospel of Mark, depending on where you believe the gospel of Luke was written. But what he's saying is that he endeavored to provide such a comprehensive history that in his account, he will go from womb to empty tomb and tell us an overarching story that in the fullness of it, we have an aspect and we have the ability to hold 
hold on to truths that ground our faith, that give us joy in times of uncertainty. And actually, we're going to see that play out in the second half of our text today in the person of Mary. Now, honestly, when people often talk about the history of the Gospel of Luke, they, they wouldn't pick the verses of Mary's song. But again, we're going to look at what history means for us, what being connected to the name of Jesus means for us, and how that name should spark joy in our lives. And we're going to see a lot of that in Mary's story. But the reality is, history is very powerful indeed. We have seen this play out in real time in our own day. For instance, it's now almost 20 years since uh, those Ivy League schools, those schools held as the most prestigious in our country by, by some, uh, that they had decided that to graduate, you no longer needed to take a single class in history. And we've seen the fruits of that, have we not? Haven't we seen the fruits of that wonderful philosophy on the campuses of Harvard and UPenn, if you follow the news, and MIT, where they don't even want to call out genocide as wrong, the genocide of Jews? They, they've purposely disconnected themselves from history, and in that, in that changing of history, in the changing of narrative, there has been a tr powerful transformation that has unfolded before them. But we don't even need to look at the power of changing history, of, of history in big ways like this, but we can even look at small ways and how we fail at times in gossip and slanders and half-truths to change historical realities to represent truth where a half-truth is actually a whole untruth. As um, a pastor uh, once well told me, and it's a good idea, a half-truth is a whole untruth. But you really want to know the power of history. Let me prove it. Let's talk about the historical moment that is at the moment the most debated historical event of the last few years. I actually, in uh, leading two funeral services for Korean War veterans in the past 10 days, and in both uh, funeral services, I took a time to just remark on the entire landscape of the life that started in the time of the Great Depression until today, and just the awesome reality of what that, those individuals saw in their lifetime. And there was one moment, and I won't say when, when somebody came up to me and said, you didn't mention January 6th. Now our president has said January 6th is one of the most egregious moments in American history. An event where protesters marched on the Capitol. There were less guns found than I would guess we would find in this sanctuary this morning because we have a lot of people who conceal carry. But 
But for me to actually say that, that I don't believe January 6th is one of the most tragic events in American history, well, what does that also, all of a sudden put me in conflict with historically? I must be a white Christian nationalist. I must be a Trumper. I must be a, a racist. I must be all these things because we know the power of narrative. And Luke knows the power of narrative. Luke understands it in his day, and he's saying, Christian, I want to give you historical certainty in this account about Jesus that it's a true history, that it's an actual history. It's not one distorted, but it's actually one that you can rely upon. And that's a wonderful thing, and we can see in the problems of this world how we, how we need a history like that. And how, we have, how this, the history we've received is then a beautiful history. History is important. And this history celebrates accomplishments, as Luke lays out. In these first four verses. Now, American culture, we love to celebrate accomplishments. We look at our calendar, the 4th of July, when we accomplished independence from Great Britain or Labor Day, the accomplishments of the American worker, Veterans Day, uh, the accomplishments of uh, those who have served in the military, Memorial Day, the, the sacrificial uh, beauty of those who laid down their life for the freedom that we enjoy in this country, MLK Day, the, the accomplishments. Uh, of Martin Luther King in terms of civil rights. We as Americans love to look at accomplishments and say, let's make a day of remembrance for it. And what Luke is saying, I'm writing a history so that you might have a faith rooted in the accomplishments of God, so that you might come to a moment like today where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord and we have a faith that is not rooted in our works, not rooted in our accomplishments, not rooted in our filthy rags, but is rooted in what Christ has done and the truth of what Christ has done. And if you can grab a hold of this idea and you bring it to our own moment of time, we have a beautiful portrait of what Christmas Eve actually is. And if you don't believe that the events of the scriptures are historical, that the accounts of Luke are historical, you actually are, in one sense, you have only a half-truth, and a half-truth is no good as a whole truth. The power of the Word of God is remarkable indeed. For instance, every, you know, uh, there's not so much magazines that do this anymore because the magazine has fallen out of favor, but you could used to see this at grocery stores. Now you find them online or you find it in books. There'll be new representations, especially during Christmas and Easter, about the true Jesus. And some representations of Jesus are as like a Southern Oregon hippie Jesus. Or there is the never judgmental Jesus about uh, sexual proclivities. Or there is the, the G version of Jesus that he only likes high church worship of, you know, the 1600s ilk of Western Europe. Or the low church Jesus who really wants us to 
to connect in the cultural music of our day and, and worship of our day. And, and if, because I'm not wearing a Tommy Bahama shirt up here, I, I'm doing a, a disservice to the gospel. There are uh, versions of Marxist Jesus where Jesus is uh, a version of, you know, a little Karl Marx. And then there's the historical Jesus found in the Word of God. And it's a history that is rich and a history that is deep and a history that is to provide joy and provide assurance and provide a way of attack against all those false histories. And it's one that we're called this Christmas to be grounded in. And so, here, Luke wants us to understand, and he tells us, he boils down for us what he most wants us to understand about this history that he's going to give. He says, I want you to know what Christ has accomplished. Because when we know what Christ has done and what he's accomplished, the counterfeits all of a sudden will melt away. And the testimony that he gets is real testimony from a variety of individuals. It's, it's reasonable to suggest that likely James, possibly Mary, possibly Paul, all had elements and others in creating Luke's account. As he mentions in the letter, he has long studied this. We also know by physically that Luke spent time in, in, in Jerusalem and in Israel with Paul. And just like in Christ, now this isn't exactly the same, we see in the first couple verses of this gospel that just as we say Christ is the meeting point of humanity and divinity, that scripture to a lesser extent is this union of the work of humanity covered by the spirit of God, working out the words of the divine God. And the purpose of this orderly account, as Luke says in verse 4, it's to give you certainty. It's, it's to give you certainty when somebody tries to misrepresent Jesus. And you go, I, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know. i, I got to go back. I gotta, maybe, maybe that's true. Who am I to say? Well, go to Luke. Go to the Gospels. Go to the Word of God and find certainty. That's the idea of this account. What certainty and what Christ has accomplished. How much certainty do you have in your life in this moment in regards to Christ? How much certainty do you have if I really sit down and ask you, are you saved? How much certainty do you have in that? If you don't have much certainty in that, how connected are you to the history of our faith? Are you wishy-washy? Are you going to and fro? Are the waves of the world's chaos is raining down on you? If you are, this isn't a time and this is a moment to appreciate how important history is in our lives. And to explore that idea fleshed out for us, to give us a, a, a moment of practical application, we're going to look at Mary's Magnificat. Now, if I wanted this sermon just to be a historical narrative uh, assessing, you know, like, um, evidence that demands a verdict kind of sermon. There are much better places to go to than this, these verses 
of this song. Much better moments where we can see the verifiable truth of what Luke says. But I actually want us to look at this moment and to look at Mary for a little while. And while I've covered these verses before, to look at them in a different way. To look at Mary's response to the course of changing history at a certainly vulnerable time in her life. We pick up after Mary has already been told by an angel, the angel Gabriel a great story. And when she first hears it, it's clear that there are a great many questions she has. She has probably some fears and doubts, it seems, from the narrative on whether or not this story is actually true. And that's not actually a, a, a problematic thing. We're to test every spirit. And the angel tries to calm Mary's nerves. And yet she is told something that no one else will ever be told in human history. It's hard enough for us in hindsight to completely grasp the awesome reality of the incarnation. I can't imagine the difficulty for her, this 14-year-old, to be told by the angel that both her barren relative Elizabeth and her, a virgin, would be with child. And while she acknowledges it being a servant of the Lord in verse 38, even in what she says when the angel departs, Mary seems to suggest she still has this sense of doubt. She says, let it be according to your word. Then she leaves Nazareth in haste and she travels roughly 90 miles to Bethlehem in order to see if what she's been told about her relative Elizabeth is true. This is a reasonable act of faith, as I said before. And as she sees Elizabeth is pregnant, she sees the history of what the angel revealed is true. And that both Elizabeth and John in the womb celebrate Mary as they see her. The historic truth of Mary's visitation, the awesome reality of all these events, that she would be the God-bearer comes into full light. The divine has entered into history. The divine is taking on humanity. The divine is in her womb. The divine might accomplish salvation for those who trust in the fullness of him and his story and what it means that he accomplished. What I want us this morning to, for us this morning to see as we look at this song to appreciate how overjoyed Mary is with her faith being a historically true faith, even while that faith that she upholds will lead her to criticism from the world. To simplify what I'm saying, I want you to see because Mary grasps the historical truth of what we celebrate today, she does not get lost in worrying about what that means for her out in the broader world. <laughs> realize that when Mary realizes, understands she's pregnant in this Magnificat, such a reality might mean the death penalty for her. We know from Matthew's gospel that it, it takes an insistence by an angel in order to give Joseph peace about Mary's pregnancy. And yet we know from places such as John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 41, that rumors of Jesus being essentially a bastard, a son of ill repute, followed 
Mary and Jesus even into his ministry. That he was considered illegitimate as a child, out of wedlock throughout his life. And which means these rumors would have persisted in Mary's life. Realize many, if not most people that surrounded Mary in her life rather believed a false story about Mary because it was easier to believe than a historical truth that Luke writes of. Realize also that this persistence of rumors about Mary being unfaithful in marriage would even follow her into death. Now, maybe some of these stories are new to you, but actually I would say that these stories are new to your ears is evidence of the hymn of Mary and the truth that it establishes. But, for instance, you can read the Greek father, philosopher Celsus, who in his day, in 178 AD, he was considered, you know, the Richard Dawkins of his day, criticizing Christians for believing in the virgin birth. He wrote that it was common knowledge that Jesus was actually a bastard born when Mary had an ungodly encounter with a Roman soldier named Pantheria. Eventually, the Jewish Talmud would pick up on this same falsehood. Three different references are in the Talmud uh, referencing Mary's illegitimacy as a mother and Jesus' questioning Jesus' origins. For instance, in one section called the Abedudah Zara, Jesus' virgin birth is told to be a lie. He's rather the son of Panthera. In Shabbat 104b, it's stated his mother was called Miriam, and yet the, doc the document gives Mary the title of the one who strayed from her husband. In Sanhedrin 67a, there is another reference suggesting Jesus' birth was illegitimate. Everywhere they mention his name, speaking of Jesus, he shall be called bastard. Yes, bastard, bastard, bastard. God's breaking into history does not come without a cost for those who believe, like Mary and like us. But what Mary exemplifies is how the truth of God coming into the world overshadows any pain, any suffering, any sorrow. Believers are made to bear because of the historical truth of our faith. Truth can overcome ideas of darkness. So if you have a stronghold of the fact that the Bible, what the Bible says is, is historically true, your faith can survive excellent challenges in what the world throws at you. Because the one who created the world has so loved you that it came into this world. that humanity set in chaos in its sin. And Mary's historical understanding of what was coming of Christ means it shines in her lyrics. She says, for instance, she talks of the joy God has given her in the truth of being with child, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This historical reality she finds herself also allows her in, in, to remember the promises of the prophets of old. Words that would have been doubted in her day as promise or faded into obscurity when Mary in, Mary in verses 48 and 49 quotes Isaiah and Micah for this unwed pregnant woman. 
she knows with God's divine favor, while outwardly, from a worldly perspective, she seems like a great harlot of scandal, she looks at the past, she looks at the present, and she looks at the future, all in this moment, all in this passage, and the historic truth of the Messiah coming to life in her womb means uh, that it accomplishes and overwhelms any doubts she might have. She says, from now on, for instance, the generations will call me blessed. And notice, it's not because of anything she has done, but she is blessed because of what the child within her womb will accomplish. She says, she is blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This young girl with only 14 years of life under her belt has a perspective that allows her to look back at her life and story and say, God has done great things for me. Does the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord have such a hold on you? When you look at critical moments in your life, when you have moments of doubt and you have moments of struggle, can you seize upon the promises in God such, in such a way, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of the rejection, and the midst of those things, can you say, God has done great things for me? Because this is a part of the Christmas story. This is a part of the very gospel itself. The thing about our human existence is we allow so many superficial worries and concerns and fears and inconsequential matters to overwhelm us. And by so doing, we forget that when we're listening to the noise of the world in such a way that, that, that we actually in the word have a way to escape it and to find joy in our present moments, to find joy when we look into the past, when we find joy in the present, and to find joy as we look into the future. God entered into history so we would be enchanged by an encounter with his overwhelming love for us. We need to look at the Bible more this way. In one sense, the Bible is a seed planter. And Mary demonstrates that the Word of God is a seed planter. And, and when we go into this Word, and when we study this Word, and when we ground ourselves in the historic truth of this Word, we are uh, helping seeds to mature, helping uh, things to take root and, and to order to grow so that when we reach critical moments like Mary is in, in this hour, we have through the grace of God, through the power of God, uh, at, uh, are ready the Word of God. Mary is a great example of having the Word of God close at hand in a, in a moment of need, in a moment of trial. And we need that too. This actually is an example of, of Mary having the Word of God uh, so close at hand that she is an example of dying. The Christmas story is very much a story of, of dying, not just the baby who would go in, to uh, be an, a sacrificial offering, but even the disciples, even the apostles that followed, all individuals who followed Jesus, they need to die in one sense or another. Some literally dying, some having to die to self. This very song is an illustration of this of dying to self, of dying to Mary's wants, of dying to Mary's plans, of dying to Mary's personal preferences. Why? Because God has come. And the history of that changes everything that she wanted, everything she desired. 
And Mary makes clear that this is a generation-to-generation kind of call. And she uses the past tense of the Greek, but as she moves forward, she uses, again, past, present, and future. And she connects it to the past in such a beautiful way. When she looks at the arm of the Lord there, I believe in verse 51, she's referencing moments like we covered in the first half of Exodus. The strong arm of the Lord, the outstretched arm of the Lord. But now the outstretched arm of the Lord is not just this spiritual, philosophical idea, but it's actually an arm within her belly. Think about that. When Mary comprehended the reality of the true history of the Messiah in her womb. The comfort of the strong arm of the Lord was in her womb, in her belly. What an amazing thing. What an incredible thought. She understands that the same strong arm of the Lord, once in old concealed, is now being revealed within her womb. How could it not bring joy? And this child in her womb, he is, as the tenses shifting in this passage helps show, he is one sense the holder of all events in time and history. From verses 51 to 53, it's, it's a kaleidoscope in one sense of history where we could rightly consider the, the bringing down of money empires like Egypt or Babylon or Persia or the northern and southern kingdoms, but we can also look forward to the bringing down of eventually uh, Herod's power in Judea and even the Roman Empire itself and other nations that would stand against the truth of God's word, stand against the history and the clear testimony of the word of God. Notice everything Mary is celebrating has historical significance. It starts from a place of humility, and yet from that place of humility will come a great reversal of fortune, where the rich leave empty-handed, but the poor receive mercy. And all of this connects in history, even back to Abraham himself. And so, fellow Christians, what are we to do with this history we have considered in the morning of Christmas Eve? What area of your life could better grasping the truth of Jesus and his incarnation bring uh, greater comfort in your life and perspective this morning? God's incarnate word came this morning to you in order to give you peace. Where have you not let God's word give you full and final peace? Also, Christian, have you allowed false narratives from culture or elsewhere to erode your trust in biblical truth? If so, why have you let such things become truth by which you live? Why don't you believe the historicity of this book? Or maybe the question you should ask yourselves is more evangelistic. What can you tell about Emmanuel, God with us? Or who could you tell about Emmanuel, God with us, and how he sustained you in troubles this Christmas season? Who needs to possibly hear the power of the Christmas story, the power of this being historically true in your life today? 
Mary had the courage to share the truth of God's word, and now it has been shared with billions upon billions upon billions of individuals. And many were granted ears to hear. Who have you put off sharing the Lord's salvation with? Is there an area of your heart where you continue to refuse the humble path? Mary here surely illustrated how the truth of God entering into history required her own humility, where you refuse to allow yourself to be more greatly humbled. History has the power, a full historical um, understanding of past, present, and future to give us great courage and joyful humility. Let us allow ourselves to continue to fight against ideas of pride and rather live in humility. Let us just truly understand how important this testimony is, how this history by Luke is well-researched and well-given so that we could have an orderly account of what God has accomplished for us. Because God wanted to give you confidence against the scoffing, against the criticisms, against all the kinds of falsehoods that are said about Jesus and his followers. There's a great array of, of popular ways that people attack this story in our midst and desire not to be changed by it. But in the person of Mary, in the humility of Mary, we see a wonderful example for us as likewise followers of this story. People who know the way, people who know the truth, and people who know the light. Uh, for us to go. We have a name that we're connected to that is a lot more important than my being connected to Robert Fulton. And when that name is said, and when that name is declared, and when that name is shared... We have a wonderful opportunity to give joy, to give light to others this Christmas season. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, this simple Christmas story is still as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Your plan to save the world is as old as your first promise in the garden. And your plan has been accomplished through Christ for us and for our salvation. Your word this morning is here in order to give us greater certainty of our faith and certainty of the way we should go. And so we pray, Lord, that we receive the most important gift of all this Christmas season. The gift of further looking to you as our strong arm, our wonderful counselor, our mighty savior indeed. Let us come to you in humility. Let us come to you empty-handed. And let us receive the goodness of the Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord.